All right, so if you had to boil down into a single statement what it means for someone who asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian, what would you say? You had one single statement. Many, especially here in America, I think would say something like this. And you get your thoughts head in your head before I, I share this. I think many people in America would say something like, a Christian is simply someone who believes that Jesus is God who died on the cross for their sins. Now, did you think of something similar to that in your head? Maybe, maybe not. Though this is a true statement, 100% true, it does not capture the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Instead, I believe that it captures how American cultural Christianity defines what it means to be a Christian. You see, and you may remember the scripture, James, the brother of Jesus, once told us in his letter that even the demons believe that Jesus is God, right? And if you've read any of the ministry of Jesus in his first advent, you've read about his encounters with demons, right? And his exorcism of demons, like legion, for example. Every single time Jesus interacted with someone who was demon-possessed, that demon inside the human being knew exactly who Jesus was. Son of God, son of man, that one day at the end is going to torment them totally and truly. That begs for us to kind of push the envelope at, at this. That being a Christian is more than just intellectually believing a set of facts as true. I would say something like this. That being a Christian is first and foremost the work of God into our hearts. To change the heart's disposition by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. To love God and to love people the way that he intended for us to. I spent a long time this week on that statement. I put you on the spot to do it in five seconds at all week. But I think that really does capture the essence of what it truly means to be a Christian, and it pushes us beyond intellectual belief. This aligns with Jesus' discussion with a Jewish lawyer about what the greatest commandment is, right? To love God with all the heart, mind, soul, strength, and then to love neighbor as self. Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon shares some intensely practical and theological application about how love for God, genuine love for God, shows up in our dealings with people. That's where we're targeting today. True wisdom is fearing God, and this is going to show up at some point in how you speak and act towards people. And that's Solomon's wisdom today. Let's get to our proposition. Our proposition today is that the wise, they prove their fear of God by prioritizing the needs of the people that he has placed into your life. That the needs of those people that God has put into your life, that their needs are a high priority for you. Maybe just as important as your perceived needs in your life or your family's life right now. Father, let your kingdom come, right? Build your kingdom here. We pray that that would happen. 
We are going to see and we're going to look at wisdom from Solomon today, from the Lord Jesus and from the Apostle Paul, to see that it is the work of God in our lives to love God and to love people the way that he has intended for us to. It's not about us loving people the way that we want to love people, but us coming underneath the authority of God to love God the way he calls us to. We're going to see that this looks like prioritizing the needs of people that God has put into our lives to be just as important as whatever we perceive our needs to be or our family's needs. You see, God has entrusted, this is something you have to believe, that God has entrusted to you every single relationship that you have in your life right now. It doesn't matter if it's spouse, children, adopted brothers and sisters in Christ in the church family, the passerby that you just intersect with in a day at work. Every single relationship, how small or how great, God has placed into your life for some sort of reason. One of the essential reasons why that person is in your life is for you to live as Christ would in front of them. You see, Jesus is not physically here right now. And if you, do th- if you know somebody that believes that Jesus is physically present on this earth right now, you've got to run for the hills. He's not physically here. But Jesus has taught us that you are the body of Christ. He is not here physically for the time being, but you are. You are the hands, the feet, the eyeballs, the ears of Jesus until he returns. The wise know this, right? We know that we're the body of Christ, that we are the image of Christ on this earth. And we prioritize our lives, though we aren't perfect at it, to show that other people's needs are just as important as our needs because that's what God did for us in Jesus. Now, the fool may know this intellectually, but the fool rejects this. Because at the end of the day, God has not changed the fool's heart. The fool's heart about Jesus or the fool's heart about people. They may be religious and do good things on this earth, but that does not mean that they are redeemed. There is a big difference between being religious and doing religious things, yet truly being redeemed by the cross of Jesus. You know this because their words and actions over time show they don't fear God. The word and the presence of God in their lives isn't their comfort and their hope. It's an obstacle, right? It's an obstruction to what they really want to do. Today, Solomon calls on you, and we'll get there through Jesus and through the Apostle Paul, to see that the needs of people in your life are just as important as the needs of you, of your needs, and your family's needs. And there is no greater place to practice this as a Christian than with your church family. Amen? It's hard, right, to show that you are just as important as me. You are different than me, but you're just as vitally important. Here's the thing. You are never going to be Christ-like with that non-Christian who is antagonistic against Jesus. You're never going to be that to them. If you cannot be Christ-like and not be self-absorbed, self-focused, but self-giving and selfless with your brothers and sisters in Christ who love your same Lord. Do you get that logic? 
Church community, therefore, is the crucible. It's our training grounds so that when we go out into a secular world, a secular culture, we can live in front of people who are neutral or antagonistic against Christianity, and we can live well, speak well, and act well in front of them. Because that is truly why God has gifted us with certain individuals in our lives. And that's where we're going with the end of Proverbs chapter 3. You ready to get started? All right. Okay. Point one. You're going to see the call in these verses that you are to unleash God's work of grace that he has given to you in your life by not hoarding for yourself and amassing for yourself, but seeking his good in people. That you will love people the way that he intended. Solomon acknowledges that all that he has and all that you have is a gift of God's grace. Think about Solomon for a second. Solomon was the richest king in all of human history. Yet he consistently writes and believes and discusses. He wisely believes that God entrusted all of those riches to him. Though Solomon was king, he firmly believed that there was a king over him, a king above all kings, an authority above all authority. Now, in contrast, many, not all, but many church American churchgoers proudly believe that their riches come from the labor of their hands. One of the reasons why you, Christian in America, are so rich, and you must remember, no matter how lacking in monetary support you think you are today, compared to 90% of the world outside of the West, you are rich. Any church in the East would come to Heritage this morning and come and see what we do and what we have and say, you are rich. That's perspective. Heritage is rich. You are rich because it's your king that has entrusted all that you are, all that you have, all that you possess. Solomon got this and he had it all. And I pray that Christians here at Heritage will get this. But this clashes with the independent, individualistic, autonomous Americana spirit. You see, we reject anyone, no matter how close they are to you, no matter whether the relationship has been clearly defined, we reject anybody who wants to tell us what to do with our marriages, what to do with our children. I've been there with y'all. With our homes and with our money, right? You've even pushed back against me over the years because of the Americana spirit in you. Here's the thing. You cannot maintain being a Christian in one end and retain your individualistic spirit above all things at the same time. Those two things are hypocrisy because, not because I say so, but because Jesus says so. Where your ultimate treasure is, your heart will be there also, right? Don't seek treasures on earth, but in heaven, right? Don't, you can't serve God and mammon. Jesus is very clear about these two paths. You have to bow down and serve one or the other. And I pray that you see that God's way, God's path, isn't counterproductive or fighting or pushing against you in what you really want to do, but it's actually part and parcel of what your heart and what your life really needs. That even though community is scary, I think individualism and isolation is scarier. 
and I'm an introvert. It's true. Solomon is going to draw this out right now. Let's see this. Verses 27 and 28. Solomon says, don't withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go, come back tomorrow, I'll give it. Well, you have it with you. You see, Solomon commands those who want to be wise not to withhold good from another. The overarching claim, there's three-ish Proverbs writers. Solomon is the major one, but they have a consistent claim. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is loving the word and the presence of God in your life, even if it clashes with your habit that you don't want to let go of, even if it clashes with the attitude about whatever blank about life, or whatever preference that you may have. I want you to see right now, and I want you to struggle through three things that Solomon says in this text. The first thing is, Solomon says, do not withhold. This is an imperative. This is a command. Like it or not, this clashes with your autonomous spirit and mine, but this is coming from like a a CEO, some commanding officer in your life that you must do. There's no option. It's an imperative. It's a command. If you want to live wisely, do not withhold good from people. So the question you start have to ask yourself is this. Do you hold back helping others with the good things that God has given to you? Now, the second thing I want you to see and struggle with is what Solomon means by the word good. Do you see, do not withhold good? Because this seems a little muddy, right? It's clear as mud. What, what does good mean? What's good for you may be different what's good for you. Let me tell you what Solomon means by what is good for you, because that's the commitment of the Bible reader. Not what I want good to mean, or not what you want good to mean, but what did God, through Solomon, intend by this word good? This word for good in Hebrew, every single time it's used in the scriptures, it's material and tangible support. It's this. Every time. You are not to withhold material and tangible support from others. We'll get to why soon. The last thing I want you to see and struggle with is when Solomon says, to whom it is due. You see that last phrase? This is going to be radical. Literally, when this is used in the Old Testament in Hebrew, it means to whom it is due means to the owner. You don't withhold your material and tangible support to the owner of it. That's literally what it should say. And that's scary. It's radical. What Solomon is saying, and remember context, who was writing this? Richest king above all earthly kings is saying this. And he says, don't withhold material and tangible support to those who own it. And he owned a lot, right? I'm pretty sure he owned the cattle on a thousand hills. But what Solomon is saying is that in the ultimate sense, you don't own your wealth and possessions. God does. God is the owner. In a real and practical sense, therefore, you're not the owner. Someone else is the owner, theologically and practically. We'll get to that. But you are the steward of the wealth and possessions that has been entrusted to you in your life. In a real and practical sense, those who are in need are actually the owners of that tangible material support. Now, you may say, Pastor, that sounds like communism and socialism and not capitalism. And you know what? Maybe it does. 
because the Christians should never feel completely comfortable in Americana, on the right or on the left, capitalism or communism. We should never feel comfortable in any of those labels, except the label of Christian. Amen? Amen. That, okay, good. That strikes against Americana, because we equate conservatism with Christianity. Oh, but there are many depraved conservatives. Therefore, the wise do not withhold a generosity. And this is going to strike deep down every single time with your desire for autonomy and independence. You worked for the money. You worked for the possessions. You own it. Or do you? Do you really? That's Solomon's question that you have to ask. Could it be that though you are religious, you are still a fool because you're looking at this, viewing your time, your money, and your possessions the wrong way. That it's yours, not his. Could it be that you view it wrong because though you are religious, and, and you do religious things, you like to do it, and you like to be around religious people, but still at the end of the day, you have set yourself up to be the final king of life. The final determining factor of all that happens in your life. And not the word and the presence of God. Solomon's wisdom is this. You do not own your time, your money, your possessions. You are a steward of this. Oh, I'm sorry, church. My nerd is going to come out right now. Because, you know, I'm still reading Lord of the Rings right now. In the Lord of the Rings, if you've at least watched the movies, much of the action centers on a country called Gondor. This is the realm of men, right? There is... This issue with Gondor, though, in the movies, Gondor does not have a king. They haven't had a king for a long time. This line of kings that used to be in their past, this line was broken for reasons we don't, it doesn't really matter right now. And Gondor doesn't know if there's ever going to be anybody ever again, any other king that will rise up from this line that was broken. Does that sound familiar by chance? Okay, if you read Jewish history... So Gondor doesn't have a king. Gondor has a steward. His name in the book series is Denethor. If you walked into the throne room in this country, in its main capital city called Minas Tirith, Denethor actually doesn't sit in the focal point of the room, this, this broad, this huge, immaculate, ornate, beautiful throne. There is a tiny, plain-looking chair in front of the throne, and that's where he sits. Because he's not king. He's steward, ruling in place of the king until the king returns. This is intentional. But Denethor's heart, just like yours, just like mine, even though he's Middle-earth, he's still man, we are fallen and we are broken, right? And if you've watched the movies or if you've read the books, you know that over time that Denethor has given up hope for the return of this king. That the sword has been broken and it will never be restored. And that it's just him. It's just his family. And he inserts himself in place of king. He may not sit on the king's throne. He may still sit on the steward's chair. But he acts as if he owns it all. He inserts himself as final authority. And at the most critical moment for this nation, 
when they need the steward to rise up because the king has returned and say, here, take it all. This is all yours anyway. He fights back against it. And we know the conclusion of Denethor's life. He literally falls to his death into the city that supposedly he loved and stewarded. Tolkien's point, I think, to us as the reader is this. Don't be a Denethor. Like, it's just that simple, right? Just don't be Denethor. You and I are stewards for the king until he returns. This is not our home. We're just a passing through, right? Or to say the way Paul says it, your citizenship and my citizenship is in heaven, right? The wealth and possessions and time that you and I have have been entrusted to us to display our king's heart for people. That's our mission. That's why we're here. Now we're going to take a look at how Solomon addresses how you and I are tempted to treat others. What happens when the steward thinks that they're king? This is what happens. Let's take a look at it. Verses 29 and 30. Solomon says, Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Don't contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Solomon says that withholding material and tangible support from others is devising harm. It's devising harm against them, and it's contending against them without a cause. Because remember, you're not the owner of that support. Someone else is. When you withhold from others what God has given, graciously given to you, here's the reality. You're actually harming yourself and you're harming others. You think you're saving yourself. You're saving your family when you retain that individualistic spirit, when you put yourself before others. But the reality, the irony, and the tragedy is the very thing you think you're doing, you're actually causing ruin in your own life. That's Solomon's wisdom. When you withhold you are actually contending with that person, and therefore you are ultimately contending with God. Eventually, you're going to get a proverb Sunday morning on the justice of God, and that God is the ultimate judge of all things and the protector of all people. We'll get to that in this proverb series. But Solomon addresses how outward giving and the inward attitude that goes with it, how it leads to and destroys a heart for people. It'll be me before we, mine before y'all. Let's look at verses 31 and 32. Solomon says, So don't envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways, for the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he's intimate with the upright. I want you to focus on two words. There's so much more we could go after in these two verses. I just want you to look at two words, envy and devious. All right, let's look at those two words. What causes a person to withhold the good that God has entrusted to them, to other people? Solomon is inferring that it's envy. And in essence, Solomon is saying, you're actually looking at the wrong person. Your eyes are fixed on the wrong object, and you've got to switch your eyes. Instead of looking to God as your king, as your final authority, as your redeemer, you're looking to yourself or you're looking to another person that you believe has it all. And in this culture, unlike 11th century Jewish culture, 11th century BC Jewish culture, you have so much more 
of other people to put in front of your eyes today than they did, all right? I think we have more of a struggle with this because of how visual and how technological our society is. It's very easy to fall into this temptation. But in essence, if you do, it means, Solomon says, that you're choosing your own way or you're choosing that person's way that you're envying above God's way. Now, you may counter and say, hey, pastor, I'm good here. I don't envy violent people. You may have already said that. But we have to clarify what Solomon means by our English word violent. By violent, Solomon means a person who gains unjustly or who has gained by wrongdoing, robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? A little bit of nefarious activity over here that you think no one will ever see, so you can go do this over here. That's what he means. There are quick and easy ways to just make money that includes lying and half-truths. The wise reject this. The fool may intellectually know this, but they cling to it anyway. But now I want to focus on the word devious. By devious, Solomon means a person who's turned away. This is very sounds like Paul in Romans. We have all turned away, because he quotes the Psalms, Solomon's father. Right? We've all turned away. They turn because it's natural because they're already bent. Like the girls, I mean, maybe we'll do it. Maybe this finger will do it. This finger is like slightly bent at the tip. I don't know if you can see it. I'm not trying to exaggerate it. It's just natural kind of bent. So it's very easy for it to not point straight. It's naturally bent. You and I are naturally bent spiritually, but we're bent inward. It's really, yeah, it should be like, pointing back at me, naturally bent. This is synonymous with our nature. We are all bent, and we have all turned away from God's original intended design for our lives. Naturally, we don't want to know God, love God, and apply what God says. We want to be God. We want to be king, right? Our desires, therefore, are out of order. I mean, they're, they are all ranked wrong. And only God can straighten out and reorder our desires, which Proverbs addresses. Now let's see the effect, the long run, the end result of the envious and the devious. Verses 33 through 35. Solomon says, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted, the wise, inherit honor, fools display dishonor. We see two paths, Two effects, right? The way of the fool, the way of the wise. God rejects the fool. He rejects the scoffer. He rejects the one who rejects his word and authority on this topic. Right? And Jesus says, like, those who confess me before man, I'll confess for my father. And those who don't, I don't. Right? God gives grace to the wise. And the one who struggles yet loves to apply God's word and authority on all topics to their life. Now let's ask this question. Who does God want you and I to not withhold good from? All right, so we've laid the foundation. Let's apply it. We've done the, the what and the why, the how. Let's talk about who now. Solomon says the neighbor. But you cannot merely or only think of our modern notion of neighbor 
because we mostly live in suburbia, right? Where we have neighbors in a subdivision, right? That's foreign to the 11th century BC Jewish people. And this is a reminder here that in terms of our studying the Bible, our reading and understanding and applying the Bible for ourselves, one thing we cannot do is inject our wanted meaning of certain words into the Bible context. It's actually vice versa. God, because he's God and king, has the power to inject his meaning into our context, and we have to come underneath that. The Hebrew word for neighbor is ria, and it has a wide meaning. If you could read Hebrew and just look through the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see this word used to describe a friend, an associate, a brother, and a lover. Wide application. So this doesn't help us answer who is our neighbor, because it could literally just be everyone, or maybe that's the point. But let's turn to the wisdom of Jesus now to answer this. In Luke chapter 10, a Jewish lawyer asks Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We've looked at some of the scripture time and time again. Jesus responds with a question. That's what Jews did during this time. They called it the Pesher method. You respond to a question with a question. I often do this to you, and it drives you nuts. I know it drives Jess nuts, and it drives my wife nuts to the infinite degree because she's stuck with it 24-7. She asks me a question, and I never answer it. I just never do. But Jesus responds to the question with a question. He asks the lawyer, what's the great commandment? He's a Jewish lawyer, not that he knows the country's official governmental law. A lawyer in that culture, because it was theocratic, that meant that they knew the scriptures like that. They memorized the scriptures, and they were trusted to give counsel on what to do in life based on the Jewish scriptures. The lawyer responds with this, to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus encouraged it. He infirmed, like, you're right. That's it. Ding, ding, ding. Life really is about displaying wholeheartedness for God. But Luke then tells us that Jesus knew that in reality, the lawyer was asking this question to justify himself. Because he knew deep down with his guilt and shame that he was not loving neighbor as himself. So he asked Jesus, okay, so I got it right, I'm, I'm glad. Who's my neighbor? Clarify for me who my neighbor is, most likely so he doesn't have to show grace and compassion to those he doesn't want to. And this question hits Proverbs 3 today. Solomon's wisdom is, I am not to withhold material and tangible support to my neighbor because that support actually belongs to them from God. So who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a familiar story to many of you who grew up in Sunday schools to clarify who the neighbor is. Remember, there's a man that's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know his profession. Maybe he was a trader. Jericho was a big trading town, closer to the port, closer to the water. So he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And on this road, this man was robbed. He was stripped, left destitute. He was beaten, bloodied, and left for dead on the side of the road on Jerusalem's way to Jericho. But praise God, right? Because shortly after, you know what happens, a priest takes the same road, a Jewish priest. A Jewish priest is Yahweh's mediator from him to man. That's the function of a priest, to be a mediator. And there is something right in front of his eyes to mediate, to tend to in the stead of God, right? 
This priest knows God's word. He knows his high calling from God himself. He knows the great commandment. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as reflection of that. What does he do? He continues on with his plan. He continues on with his agenda. His agenda versus God's agenda, his wins. Then shortly after, praise God, a Levite takes the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, those of you who do not know who Levites are, let me just tell you very briefly. Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons, right? One of them was named Levi. If you remember, he's the one that was left in custody as the other brothers went back to their father to get, you know, to get proof and grab Benjamin. And eventually, when the nations are pushed out of Palestine so that the sons of Jacob can inhabit it, Levi doesn't get a region in Palestine. They get to live in all. It's not like, okay, just Judah, this is where all the Judahites are. Levites are everywhere. They're especially charged with caring for the sick, like the leper. Like if you have leprosy or you're suspected of having leprosy, the, leper, the Levite comes to help. They touch them, right? When someone accidentally kills somebody and another person wants to kill that person, they run to a city of refuge that's organized by the Levites. And the Levites care for that person. That's what Levites do. Surely, this Levite would help this beaten and bloodied man on the side of the road, right? But he too walks right on by and rejects the very calling of God in his life. Oh, but then there's a third, right? Our Lord loves threes for some reason. Father, Son, Spirit, three days, resurrection, right? Third man comes along. But this man is no priest, and he is no Levite. He is a Samaritan, okay? Every culture has a demographic that we say like that. He's an illegal alien. He's a liberal. He's a progressive. Samaritans would be the liberal and progressive in that day, right? We loathe people like that, right? This country does. For Judaism and Israel in this time, they're Samaritans. Samaritans were the marginalized of Jewish society. They're half-bloods, you see. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, 6th century B.C., destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carted off basically everybody to slavery and exile, he left the lowest of the low in the land. They settled it. Foreign nations settled it. The lowest of the low of Jewish people were left there, and they intermingled. Something that Scripture said, hey, Jew, you don't intermingle with the nations. You, you just marry within your own nation. Why? Outside the topic of today. But eventually, these people intermarried over time, and now, even though the blood that ran through Abraham at one point was 100% in them, over time, maybe this much of Abraham's blood ran through them. So it's racial superiority. That's what's going on here in first century Israel. Therefore, the Jews looked down on Samaritans. Now, most likely, the beaten and bloodied man left on the side of the road was Jewish. He was leaving Jerusalem, which is not Samaria. And if the roles were reversed, and it was a Samaritan who was stripped and beaten and left for dead, the Jewish man would not stop for the Samaritan man. But this Samaritan does not withhold good from the man who's half dead on the side of the road. And you and I have to figure out why and how it is. The Samaritan cleans up the half-dead man's wounds with oil and with wine, Jesus tells us. The Samaritan binds up 
the man's wounds, puts him on his mount, leads the mount to the nearest town, goes to the inn, and delivers this beaten man to the innkeeper, gives him two denarii, two days of wages. That's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money for me. And says, innkeeper, here's advance, two days of my wages. Take care of this man. I got to go away, but I'm coming back. And if it takes more, if it costs more to care for this man to recover, I will pay it when I return. That's amazing, right? Who does this for the illegal, for the progressive, right, for the liberal? The Samaritan absorbed the cost to redeem and restore this man. Why would a Samaritan do any of this? The, Jew, the priest didn't do it. The Levite didn't do it. Why would the Samaritan do this? Why did the Samaritan not withhold good? Jesus says and tells us the reason. It's because he had a heart of compassion. And here's what we learn. Your habits reflects your heart. Your actions reflect your attitudes and assumptions about people. After telling the story, Jesus asks the lawyer a question. Another question. He gives him this long extended answer, which really isn't even an answer, which drives some people crazy. Then he asks another question. Let's take a look at it. He asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? And the Jewish lawyer said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Can you imagine the humble pie if this Jew had to say that the Samaritan is the hero of the story? God loves to invert things. Jesus says to him, so go and do the same. The lawyer has to acknowledge that the priest and the Levites, the religious of the religious of the culture, failed. They were religious. They knew scripture. They believed in God. They attended synagogue and temple, but they had no heart of compassion for people. In essence, they were religious, but they were not redeemed. That's a human problem, not a Jewish problem. The redeemed, showed by the Samaritan, do not withhold good from people because they have a heart for God, and it shows up in their heart for people. The Samaritan absorbed and took on the cost of this man's recovery and redemption and restoration. And all that points to Jesus being the best of all Samaritans. Jesus took on the ultimate cost for your redemption and your recovery. Sometimes you and I withhold good from church, from those who are not like us. And can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying the same thing? I can't do X today. I got to go do this. Can you imagine Jesus? I'm not going to take the cross today. It's time to go fishing. It's time to go hunting. It's family day. It's brunch day. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Never. But his people say it. But Jesus has left us here to be his representation on earth. See the inconsistency there? The lawyer is shown in the priest and the Levite, but the question today is which one are you? Are you the Levite, the priest, or are you the Samaritan? Here's today's wisdom. The genuine Christian will grow. Though we're not perfect, we're going to fail. But we will grow to accept that all that we have is a gift from God. Entrust it to us. And it's meant to be unleashed by God for good in the lives of those around us. The wise will grow in this. The fool will grow to continue to reject this. 
So we ask, as we move the application and we close, how can you and I, as the people of Jesus, the hands and feet of Jesus, the body of Christ, how can we, like Jesus says, go and do the same as the Samaritan? Let's get to our application. Just a couple more minutes. The application, I think, for you and I that we need to do today is this. How does this fit into our lives? We've got to do some heart confrontation. We have to confront our heart to see if it's really honoring Jesus' heart for people. Not just your people, but the people, all the people that God has put into your life. In our application, you and I need to confront our heart's focus and our motives You need to confront whether you have the wrong view of wealth and possessions and time. You need to see if you have Jesus' heart, his compassion for people who are outside of your family and outside of people who look like you and dress like you and have the same interests and hobbies as you. You need to confront whether you view other people as less than you. At the bottom of it all, the real issue that Solomon would say if we could speak to him is, do you fear God? Is God really the final authority in your life, or are you? Because if God is a final authority, you're going to grow in this. And we talk about all the time on Wednesday nights. Our growth is like this, but it still has trajectory, right? But still, even though you feel like you're right here right now, it's still higher than where you were back here, right? Okay. So you may be religious. You may intellectually know things about God. You may do things, do some religious practices. You may pray, attend church. But that does not mean that you are redeemed. So how do you confront your heart? You need three things. You need the Spirit of God. I can't do it. You need the Word of God, which I can help you do. Focus on this. And you need the people of God. So you need the Holy Spirit, you need the Scriptures, and you need the church. Let me help you get started with application. This year, I said in January, I've said it dozens of times this year, Moving forward, year eight and forward together, I'm trying to clarify what it means for you, what it means to be a Christian. There's a lot of misunderstanding. It's more than just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That's, it's, it's too simple. That's too simple. I'm trying to clarify what it means to be a Christian, and in application, what does it mean to be a Christian at heritage? For example, we set up a pattern. It's not perfect, but we set up a pattern of Christian living. So when that pattern is disrupted, we can come alongside each other's lives and say, what's going on? And you can reject, you can, but that's what it means to be a Christian here at Heritage. So we're focusing on three things. I haven't mentioned this in maybe a month or two. Number one, love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. That's number one. Number two, open up your life to invest in people who are not like you so that they can see the gospel in you. And then three, that you're also going to open up your life to invest in the church. And you open up your life so the church can invest in you. It's pretty simple. I want to take two of those statements and turn them into questions to help you confront your heart. So, am I loving the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus? you got to ask your heart then. And then two, am I opening up my life to invest in people who are not like me, so that they can see Christ in me? The answer to those two questions will really show you if you are withholding good from your neighbor and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. But I want to connect it to Scripture really quick, and then we'll close. All right. So we did Solomon, we did Jesus. Let's go to the Apostle Paul and close up. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. 
Paul's wisdom is this to the church. He says for us to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Humility of mind, regard one another in the church as more important than yourself. Do not merely, I'm glad he says merely, just exclusively look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In essence, he's saying this. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now he gives us the motive. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God, something just to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, like you and me. Then being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the wisdom of Paul on this. Paul's calling and wisdom is this. As a Christian connected to a local church, you are to see the people in your church family as more important than yourself. That's a major mic drop for the Apostle Paul, right? Paul calls on you not only to look after your own interests, your own needs, your own priorities, but also to prioritize the interests of your church, your church family. Heritage has been growing in this. Church, if you could see where we were eight and a half years ago to now, you would see growth. People have come and gone, but we're clarifying, right? We're moving forward. But this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian here in Branchton. But there are still people who claim the name Christian, yet they don't do this. The desire isn't there. Now, there, there could be causes for this. And they may open up or not about it, but that's still the reality. There's growing, but there's still growth to be made. That's my point. So that's the interpretation of the text. How does this fit in with your life? How does this apply? I don't believe that you're going to be able to go out there and live well in front of the non-Christian who's neutral or antagonistic against Jesus until you love the Christian who is not like you and your church family with the love of Christ. Do you get that? This is our training ground. This is our crucible. This is the realm that was revealed if you really are a Christian or if it's selfish ambition that brought you here or some other motive. So we ask, how can we do this? We have to ask God to work this attitude of his son into us. Preaching can't do it. Only the Spirit of God can do this. So we must pray, Spirit of God, work Jesus into me. And you know what? Only the genuine Christian prays like that. Jesus is God and King. Jesus emptied himself by taking on human nature. King Jesus became slave Jesus to redeem the people of Jesus. So we cannot love the Christian and the non-Christian in our lives as God intends until his son's heart is worked into us. And that takes a lot of confrontation and calling what's there for what's really there and feeling the shame and the light on it, and then moving on. So look at your heart's focus. If your heart's focus is building, well, is your heart's focus building your kingdom above God's kingdom? I mean, we sang about it this morning, right? Build your kingdom here. It starts in my heart, right? Is your heart's focus honoring Jesus' heart for people? Not just your people, but people even the Samaritan, right? 
If not, you have to listen to Solomon's counsel. God resists the proud, and he gives grace to the humble on this. So stop looking to the ways of others, envying their lives. I know it's hard. We're in a visual culture, and everybody promotes everything about themselves these days. But instead, look to the way that God has given to you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you don't stop looking at others, Solomon says your end will be dishonor. You have to remember that you are the steward, not the king. So don't be Denethor. Don't be Denethor. Look to Jesus instead. Look to the return of the king who became a slave. God who did not withhold his greatest good in your life, which was your redemption. And prove your fear of the Lord by making the needs of others, especially those who are not your people, to be a priority. This is practiced in the church family. So we can apply it, not that church family doesn't matter, but where it really matters is with those who are antagonistic against Jesus. And if you do, you will find honor at the end, which we call your inheritance.